0: In the name of God, who creates, redeems, and sanctifies. Amen. Please sit. Every once in a while, we have a gospel where Jesus tells us to do something, and I sort of want to look at him and say, really? You think that's a good idea? This is one of them. Jesus says, if another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. And to that I say, sure, Jesus, that'll go really well. I'm Looking forward to that. Thanks for that advice, but wait, it gets better. If the member does not listen to you, then you take two or three witnesses, witnesses who will vouch for the fact that you're handling this the right way, that you're telling the truth. It gets better and better. Then if the one who has sinned against you still won't listen, Then you tell the story to the whole church because public shaming is obviously what we're here for. And if the offender still refuses to listen to you and refuses to reconcile and refuses to apologize, then let that one be to you like a Gentile or a tax collector. The worst of the bunch. The bottom of the barrel. The ones we want nothing to do with. Those family members you have that you don't talk about with anyone else? The guys who aren't invited to dinner? The ones we whisper about behind their backs? The ones we want nothing to do with because they're so different from us, because they're traitors, because they're sinners? Then, of course, we shut them out, right? It's okay. We don't have to feel badly about it. It's right there in Scripture. Gentiles are too different from us after all. Surely they don't have God's blessing. Surely God doesn't love them. And tax collectors, well, they've made their own beds. So now they have to lie in them. This isn't on you, it's on them. Isn't that nice? They didn't listen to you when they had the chance and they didn't say they were sorry. Man, that's a nice, easy, comfortable way to read that text, isn't it? Except it doesn't sound very much like Jesus. Does it? All of our texts this morning are about conflict and reconciliation. And there are some important parallels between the gospel and the epistle. And I wanna do just a very brief history lesson here because I think the timing is important. Most scholars fix the date of Jesus's death and resurrection to be between the years of 29 and 34 CE. So that's the common era or AD, the old system, if you're more familiar with that. 29 to 34. Paul's letter to the Romans that we heard this morning is the last of the letters that we know that Paul wrote, and that's dated somewhere around 57 or 58, so less than 30 years after the resurrection. Paul's letters are actually the most contemporary writings we have, the earliest, the first one being written probably around 53, a little bit before the Gospel of Mark was written, Now, the Gospel of Matthew was probably written in the last part of the first century sometime after 70. Okay, so still very close, but more like 40 or 50 years after the resurrection. And to us, who were several thousand years later, that doesn't sound like very long. But to them, it still was. To the communities that Paul and Matthew were talking to and in conversation with, it was still a lot of time. A lot had happened to them in the world And a lot had happened around them by the time these texts are written. It's a different world already than the one that Jesus came to and then left. And all these communities that Paul is writing to, as well as the communities that the gospel writers have in mind, all of these people have already had to struggle in this short period of time, in these 30, 40, 50 years. They've had to make hard decisions. People died that they didn't expect to die. Remember, they thought that Jesus was coming back like immediately, like tomorrow. And so they didn't expect to have to figure things out, to see people die, to navigate difficult decisions, to really kind of build communities where they had to have long-term relationships with people who were different than them. How are they supposed to reconcile their Jewish faith and this new faith that Jesus teaches them? Are they supposed to keep kosher? Are they supposed to continue to circumcise and to keep the law? And just like for us, there were many, many, many situations in their life day after day after day when they had to make decisions that they hoped were faithful with just tiny little pieces of information because guess what? Jesus didn't talk about all of these other things that they had to deal with in their everyday lives. Not indirectly, sometimes not at all. There was no guide, no rule book, Just these same stories that we hear in the letters and in the Gospels, and this sense of love that Jesus shared everywhere he went. Always love, first and last and in between. And slowly over time, that love becomes tradition, and it becomes a way, and it becomes a sense of of how we live life together. But not first, without a tremendous amount of conflict. And if we look at Scripture, there is a ton of conflict, especially in the book of Acts. If you've ever even read pieces of Acts, basically most of that book is Christians fighting with each other about what it means to be faithful. How do we do this? What does that look like? And even Peter and Paul, who maybe are some of the the most common known people and saints, right? They can't agree on a thing in that book, and they can't stand each other either. Their fighting is anything but kind and Christian in the way that we would think of it. Now, some of this is good conflict, what you might call necessary conflict, the kind that had to be sorted out in order for us to move forward. But let's not forget that there would have also been a ton of, shall we say, more petty conflict too? Because not surprisingly, these communities are all made up of people. And that's what we do. Especially when we care about something. Especially when we think we're right when we have opinions, tensions get high, people get sensitive, and really, many of us like to be right, right? Many of us like to be in control, probably most of us, if we're honest. And so these two texts today, the Epistle and the Gospel, what they're trying to do is give us a sense of how to live in community, how to manage conflict, and how to move from conflict toward reconciliation. Now, the Epistle is about the law, And the first part in particular is about the law of love. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So Paul argues that if we love our neighbor, then we can't help but keep the law. Those two things sort of go hand in hand. They are exactly the same thing in some ways. We can't help but keep and honor the Ten Commandments. It comes naturally if we love the people around us. That's what he's arguing. If we want good for our neighbors rather than harm, if we want to put their needs ahead of our own, if we actually love them, not out of a sense of sacrifice, but out of a desire to love, then we can't help but keep the commandments and keep the law, it's, it's natural. Jesus boils it down to all of this too, actually, a little bit before, when he says that to be faithful, all we need to do is love God and love each other. On these two commandments, he says, hang all the law and the prophets. So love leads us to be our best selves, to care for each other, to give of our time and our talent and our treasure. Love leads us into community and into healthy relationships where we respect the dignity of every human being, where we build justice and mercy. Love works wonders. But as the Matthean community knows, the community that Matthew was in and around and writing to or as anyone who's ever been married knows, or anyone who's ever had any kind of meaningful, transformative relationship where you're committed to someone, whether it's a a friendship or a parent and a child, or even when there is love, even when there is lots of love, even when we're trying really hard, eventually, there is conflict. Feelings get hurt, mistakes happen, even with the best of intentions, even when we don't mean it. And so the writer of Matthew's gospel gives us this protocol to try to deal with that, to um, try to address that conflict and reach toward reconciliation. And it sounds strange to our ears, but that truly is his intention. First, try privately, one-on-one. Then bring friends. Then tell the whole church. Now, admittedly, that sounds especially dicey, but that's what it says. And the reason it says that is because in Christian community, we don't get to just give up and walk away. If our faith is real, if our love is real, we don't take our toys and go home. We don't say, you know what, never mind, I'm all done with that. We come back and we try again. If faith is real and love is real, then we don't just throw it away. Now we live in a world, especially this year, I'm sure you've seen the articles, they started popping up around January and I think the last one I saw was in June about this sort of growing trend of ghosting and the growing trend of quiet quitting, right? Where we sort of um, show up sort of, but do the bare minimum. Maybe we have relationships that just feel too hard and we kind of let them go. We're not willing to put the work in. And this is a growing trend in lots of people's lives and lots of people's relationships, both with other people and with institutions, like the church, for example. But when love is real, And when it is genuine, we don't just throw it away. It calls us back. It doesn't let us walk away. It invites us instead, insists maybe, that we work it out. Love makes us want to work it out. Which is why the end of that protocol that we get in the gospel really doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't sound like Jesus. Let them be to you like a Gentile or a tax collector. Well, it doesn't make any sense if you listen to this sort of normal paradigm of the day where the Jewish people and the Gentiles really didn't didn't like each other, couldn't stand each other, and were constantly fighting, where tax collectors were perceived as sinners and traitors. But if you look at the context of Jesus's ministry and what he has done to this point and what he continues to do after this point, then we can begin to see that Jesus treats Gentiles and tax collectors in a remarkably different way. In fact, he turns this paradigm on its head, completely upside down. What, you might ask, does Jesus do with tax collectors and Gentiles? He feeds them. He eats with them. He teaches them. He explains things to them. He welcomes them into spaces that they have historically not been allowed to be in. He heals them. He forgives them. Even our own Matthew, who we will celebrate next week, the person for whom this gospel is named, the person for whom this church is named, he is a traitorous tax collector. And yet he becomes one of Jesus's most beloved disciples, part of the inner circle, the writer of the gospel, a builder of the church. So while Gentiles and tax collectors may once have been outcasts, Jesus shows us a different way, a way where all people belong, where all people are forgiven even when they haven't asked for it, even when they don't think they want to accept it, a way where all people are reconciled, where all people can contribute, where everyone matters, where you matter all because of love. So what is Jesus really saying? After doing everything else, confronting and talking and pleading and trying to reconcile, let them be to you as a tax collector or a Gentile, who you once thought was different than you, who you once thought you were better than, who you once thought were outsiders and traitors. But now you know better. Let them be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector, someone who sits at your table, someone you treat like family, someone who deserves kindness and respect, someone who has become part of the community, someone who deserves forgiveness. Forgive them and try again. That's the model. Even if they don't forgive you, even if they're not willing to talk to you, even if they're not willing to come back and do the work to stay in relationship, forgive them, love them. And when it's appropriate, try again. This text has often been used as a justification for expulsion and exclusion. But the truth is that if we look at this paradigm that we continue to hear about in the Gospel of Matthew, there is no exclusion or expulsion in the kingdom of God. That is of the world. That's of the brokenness that we create here, well outside the bounds of God's love. We are called to live by the law of love, to love and forgive and reconcile as best we can. And when we have conflict with someone, particularly a member of the community, a child of God, and it cannot be resolved, then the resolution is always love and forgiveness and kindness and mercy and welcome. That is how Jesus treats Gentiles and tax collectors. And that is how Jesus calls us to treat each other, even in our disagreements. We are called by God to be one body in faith, bound up by word and sacrament, bound up by the love of God and love of neighbor, bound up by our baptism and by eating at this table together. Bound to welcome all people without exception. And when we disagree, because we do, and we will, to make sure that at the end of the day, love always wins. So as you carry this gospel with you this week, I have a couple of questions I'd like you to consider. What conflicts do you carry within you that you're struggling to let go of? What hurts can you not let go? Who is the Gentile or the tax collector in your life? And do you still need to turn that paradigm upside down by showing them kindness and compassion and forgiveness and mercy? Or is that tax collector, collector or Gentile you? Is it you that feels like the outcast? Who needs to let love in? Whichever direction it is, how can you live by this law of love this week? Seeking reconciliation, offering forgiveness to yourself and to others, and learning to love God and neighbor better. Amen.